It's your um, session, right? Yeah, I'm starting. There we go. Okay. So I, what I was thinking, well, so I, in terms of that uh, reality TV, I do think it's really connected all because I think part of the reason reality TV came into play is it was potentially a way for people to get uh, I, the promise of it was more raw access to reality, right? To, to, to the kind of intimate details of, of people's lives to, to, to have like a, you know, cause there's a sense in whenever you, whenever you're listening to a story that there's a, there's a manufactured element of, of, of fiction. I think mm. we stopped trusting the, the, that fictional element to be in connection with reality at some point. And so this, this was a way of shortcutting that. I mean, I mean, there was a lot of economic reasons for why it came to be as well, which I think are related to techno babble too. But um, I think, I think the reason it has, it's had such a massive popularity is because it is this window into, uh, into the, the intimacies of, of people's personal stories, or at least it's a pretense into that because, you know, you find behind the scenes that a lot of times producers are actually trying to like set things up in, in kind of deceptive ways for the audience. But, uh, you know, something, something's going on there that I think is related to techno babble. Um, I guess one of the things I wanted to talk about was just like, I, so I think, it's weird because I, I the, the, this subject is something I've thought about for a really long time. And it sounds like it's something that's kind of possessed you for, for some time as well. Yeah. How long would you say you've kind of been non on this one or it's like something in the back of your mind that you're trying to give words to? So I, so I thought of even the term technological babble. I don't know. Probably like, if I had to guess five, five years ago, maybe. Gotcha. And, and that's, and then that's just like when I, when it was formed enough to put into a word, you know, the stuff underneath it had been, you know, I'd been thinking about for a really long time and I don't know. It's, it's really so long ago now. And I've been thinking about it so long and talking to you guys about it so long. I it's, I can't even remember what how it started oh really you know to tell you the truth no there wasn't um, like a book or um some thinker that you were in touch with that that no kind of no and i haven't even really thought about it um man i should really that would be an interesting thing for me to i'll think about it for a while and get back to you on if i can remember what it even began i'm such a the way my mind works is so weird that I don't, <laughs> that I'd have to really think about it for a while to try to piece it back together. But it's, um, it's, it's more of like, a, I think to me, it's really connected uh, to, it, it's not like a grand, it's not, it's not meant to be like a grand theory of everything, but it's, but it's very connected to my general uh, disposition to always, I'm always trying to see <clears throat> the way Rob Bell says it is the thing behind the thing behind the thing, or 
or the thing that's the spirit that's underneath unifying all sorts of things or like the thing that nobody's paying attention to the water we're swimming in. What's the, yeah. um, and I, and I think that's a lot of it. And it's, I think it really became some of it probably has to be tied into Rupert Sheldrake stuff. I got into Rupert Sheldrake, I don't know, a long time ago. It was probably around that time or probably a little bit before then. And I really do think Rupert Sheldrake is such a f fundamental thinker in the world today. Like he's just, he's such a um, underutilized thinker. Uh, and he, it was almost maybe before I even, which, which I think is really connected to the stuff that Pe Peugeot talks about with like pattern. And I kept seeing, it was probably connected to that and even the space trilogy. I started to get, I think I started to see the idea of patterns and spirits <clears throat> that are underneath these material manifestations that keep coming up all the time. Mm -hmm. And then I think once I started to see these patterns, I started seeing them very transcendent of our modern kind of identitarian categories. And so like um, I would see <clears throat> a really easy way to say it would be like in modern American politics with like Republicans or Democrats, I started to see like, oh, we don't really have a two party system. It's just a one party thing with two different names and they're playing off each other. But really it's about a power game, just keeping power centralized in, in this certain group. Uh, so it's the same spirit, but we're calling it something different. Oh. And then I started seeing that in religion in a lot of different places of just being like, oh, I don't think these things are really any different. We're just calling them different things. Yeah. And, and I think that's the idea that started, that started rolling it. And then at some point, uh, it got technology got brought in. I mean, I've always been a little bit of a, I've been inclined to be more of a Luddite. I mean, I'm kind of a romantic where I like will romanticize the Amish or like being a hermit or something, you know? And then I think the more that I got into it and thinking about it and even understanding what technology is, which I think slowly over time I got language for through like Jacques Ellul and Craig Gay and some of these people that Rupert Sheldrake, what the, I started to see like what, what technology is and what it does. It started connecting all these things and, and really it's probably connected to just broad ideas of, of diversity, like ideas like um, unity or like uh, unity amidst diversity and the idea of even, it's these broad patterns, like even in an ecological system, like the, the yeah. reason that e ecological systems are robust is they're diverse. If you start ridding of diversity, and that's what technology does too. Technology just, re the reason it works, even like mass production is because you just repeat sameness just over and over and over and over and yeah. over. Yeah, that, that's definitely part of it. It's like the, <clears throat> yeah, the copy paste kind of culture. Um, but that's how you can mass produce things. You can't <laughs> mass produce things that are different. Well, all the economic incentives have definitely been in that, in that regards, right? You, you get the home run by having this thing that, that the idea is cheap, you know, and then you can copy paste it a million times and, you know, or a billion times and you, you make a lot of money that way. 
Um, what's funny is like, I'm almost coming to the opposite way. Like I, I hear what you're saying about like coming from like the Luddite perspective. I feel like I, I was more of like a huge fan of technology growing up. And um, I don't know if you remember Wired Magazine. You ever read that? Yeah, a little bit. I'm not, yeah, so, I remember the name. Like back in the 90s, it was such, it was a really cool magazine actually. Like it was much more weird and mm -hmm. it was um, kind of all about what was cutting edge and what was changing in, and there was a, there was a huge cultural swell of, of kind of like this kind of hippie, make the world better kind of drive that was underlying, you know, the internet and just all these emerging platforms that were going to democratize um, power um, and all these things. You know, I, I, I saw the, you, I, I mean, I could see already, like, and I was like in, maybe in high school in the nineties thinking this way, like that, that there was, there was a coming future in which um, the nerds would be on top to some extent, right. That the people who, who had, who understood this stuff and were like, loved it, were going to have disproportionate amounts of power, you know? Mm. Um, but I saw it more in a positive way and I've seen it's not gone that way. It's gone. It, it had that potential, but it's, it's taken all these left turns. So I've, I've always seen like this potential for this kind of glorious city on a hill mm. <laughs> and I've seen it go this other direction. Um, um, so like, I like, so like a lot of my, early inklings of this thing which i wouldn't i, I don't <clears throat> even thought of giving it like a name like techno babble would be until maybe like sometime in the last you know five to ten years but like i feel like i've been at the edges of this for like 20 plus years just working in technology and seeing okay here's where technology is missing it's, and but and seeing that the solutions to it are also in some sense um technical because i think mm. part of what's happened is all these all these layers of technology is what's happening is they're separating us from each other and they're also separating us from the truth but i don't think technology necessarily does those things i think it can also i mean i mean we've seen like you know just in terms of like paul's community and things how it can do the exact opposite like across extreme distances it can bring like it can make a community out of like just some ideas and words you know they can coalesce and form <clears throat> um which i think is interesting i think i don't know i think there's i've always had like ideas about ways in which that could be done um and and specifically like with all the, like the Amazons, Facebooks, Googles, et cetera, like they tend to, tr they tend to look at the future of technology as being kind of machine oriented. And like, it's all about, you, you have this uh, bunch of people that are just really phenomenally skilled at, um, at efficiency at, a, at like a machine level of like ones and zeros. Mm -hmm. That's how they were able to build these like ginormous, applications that scale to a global scale which is it's not a it's not a uh, an easy thing to do 
I mean, people come sometimes trivialize it if they don't understand it, but it, I mean, there's, there's a real amount of effort that's gone into it, but, but as, as a byproduct of that is a, a kind of a feeling that these machines are our future. And so what, what happens is that, you know, man, you have this kind of this, 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 the machines are on a pedestal and humans, it's kind of like the matrix. Like we're like these, these little things that are there to, to donate, <clears throat> donate our time and attention to, to feed the machines. Yeah. Um, but on an economic scale, because it's really right. become that like, yeah, it's not so much just like from a, from a power energy thing. It's more from like a economic level because that's what, that is the most, uh, sought after commodity now human time and attention. yep human time and attention but the human time and attention for <laughs> the big companies facebook google etc is is really like they value our attention at like fractions of a penny per you know per minute you know like they they'll waste all this time of yours and get a, a fraction of a penny out of it and it's a good it's a good transaction for them but it's it's a if you look at the math, it's just, it's just, it's making us impoverished as a, as a culture. Right. Cause it, it's like, I mean, I mean, but there was, I mean, I don't know. I mean, serendipity isn't necessarily a bad thing because it can lead you into all kinds of paths that are unexpected and good, but it can also, it's also done this weird thing where it's, it's trained our brains to always be, to always want something novel and um and different and and uh and entertaining like now like like literally i think people's attention spans are so split from this this need to do it you know right this second and that's i don't i don't think we were we're even beginning to comprehend you know the effects of what that's doing um to our just our consciousness the ways in which like i can't even listen to a my 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 friend tell a whole sentence without me starting to think about you know what am I doing later today you know like this this kind of slipping of consciousness is like yeah. built into um, it's built into like how we spend a lot of our time so yeah that's it's it, that's a little bit of a struggle because I know the way that I would um, for me relate to that is um, is like even so I'm a part of this local book club but reading particularly if i'm at home if i go somewhere else or it's nice outside and i go to a park or go sit in a cemetery or something it's uh i can read but um if i'm just sitting at home i have a really hard time reading it's really difficult for me because i can i can talk to somebody like you i can listen to a podcast i can play music i can watch a youtube video and there's there's this infinite um, amount of things that can that is vying for my attention and I almost wonder if it's too I'm reminded one of the really important quotes I think in all this is and I had heard this but then I looked it up and it's so profound I need to go back and read it again but when um, Socrates was talking about his lament of literacy um, and he was yeah. saying like when we all become literate, when we all have this technology of books and math, you know, and, and being able to write, I mean, that was an early technology before it wasn't books because we didn't have books yet for the printing press, but even writing and, and people becoming literate at all. He said, this will affect our memory. 
And so like our habit, that's one of the things that Craig Gay gets into in his book and Rupert Sheldrake has talked about a lot too, is that technology, I think fundamentally, ontologically, one of the things that it is, is a trade-off of expediency for skill. You mm-hmm. lose you lose certain skills for expediency, and it's always, and I don't think my n- natural impulse is to think that's a bad thing. I don't think it necessarily is a bad thing, uh, but I think we don't often think about that. So like, even our abilities to tell stories and remember ancient stories and to remember ancient myths and just to memorize long form poetry and stuff like that is really decreased. Our ability to navigate in the world because of Google Maps is hugely decreased. Our ability to guide ourselves by the stars, and those are all disconnections from the real world because of technology that allow us to do things more quickly. And, and I think that's just native to what technology is. And then I think you have to ask yourself, like, part of me, part, part of my fear, I guess, or concern is that that's inherently, technology is almost like inherent, I don't know if this is the right way to say it. It's almost inherently like a, a practical Gnosticism. It like divorces us from the real material world and we become more and more isolated all the time and and i think like my inability to read a book is is just like a modern form of that um and and so i don't and this i guess that gets into my idea of babble and that gets into my idea of like what i think is potentially going and this is not gonna be a popular thing to say but like I'd love your thoughts on this of what's even happening with like coronavirus, but but I, I I do think that when you when you start to um, get rid of diversity and the world becomes global and everything's centralized and everything is connected and there aren't like little micro ecosystems and micro social systems and micro cultures and everything is just one thing, I think mass spreading um biological uh you know diseases and problems is an issue uh thinking and war is an issue um because like that's all well the virus issue i think is is mainly it's a connectivity issue like uh, like we've never been more physically connected to the world yeah like like in terms of like somebody can get from china right to, to um you know to California like that. And then yeah. while they're, and once they get there, they're interacting with people that have come from Europe that have come from, you know, every continent on the globe and they're all rubbing shoulders and then they go back to where they came from and, you know, which is good and bad. Like, so they, whatever good things, ideas, um, you know, microbes that they pick up, they spread yeah. everywhere and whatever bad <laughs> ideas and microbes they they pick up they spread everywhere too but then so the idea of Babel though is that we are through our tools through our intellect through our uh like what's the word um ingenuity is that is that a word how come that sounds really stupid right now doesn't sound like a word (laughs) like in terms of like uh that's like a French word, isn't it? I don't know. It doesn't sound right right now. Maybe it's probably because I'm not saying it right. But through all those kinds of things, we're trying to build, we're trying to build a tower to reach to the heavens. Another way to say that is we're trying to use, 
we're trying to use tools to manipulate our world yeah. to control it to get the ends that we want which is the same thing to me as like satan and milton's paradise lost i mean it's it's all the same spirit but my fear is is that i think this is the idea and the motif of what babel is and floods and inbreaking of um of re-leveling of things is god says listen that's never what you were supposed to do and what you're supposed to do. And you're going to end up killing yourself. And so God in his judgment and mercy only allows things to go so far before there's a releveling. Yeah. Well, it's weird because like, yes. Okay. There's the, there's the negative sense of, of this kind of confusion of languages that that gets built in with technology because of the ways in which um language becomes kind of overly overly specific you know and you, and you see this proliferation of all these all this jargon and all these kind of yeah it's it's even hard for me in that to, to distinguish what's good and bad like in terms of um like you know the, the, this extra capacity to describe uh in granular detail um is there's a good aspect and a bad aspect in terms of there's just so much knowledge it's like you end up see the, the problem i see all the time in in my sphere um and I, I was dealing with this on a call today is just you end up with situations where there's the level of complexity is is so great that it, it can't fit in any one person's head right once that happens, nobody can own it. Nobody can direct it. And it kind of has this uh, kind of out of control careening car bit where like, it'll kind of, you can kind of knock it back onto the road, but it's really, it's just going to go off the, in another direction. You, you lose this, it loses any sort of elegance or beauty or cohesiveness to, to these different parts. Yeah. Um, or sometimes you'll have a problem where, you know, at a technical level, like I'm, I'm working on this problem where there's like basically three interacting parts that need to work together well. And, you know, you, you solve a problem in one of them and then the people like, like, all right, it's fixed. And then it's like, actually, no, because nobody, everybody's testing their own little thing separately from everything else. And um, so I'm, I'm the person who gets to see the customer's perspective of still doesn't work. <laughs> You know, you may fix your little thing here, but the, nobody, because of the ownership is at these individual levels, nobody thinks, oh, well, how does, how does, what's the cohesive picture of this look like? Yeah. Um, and it's just, it's a complexity issue because why did, well, why did those people get assigned their own little role? Because that, that was the bit of complexity they could handle. So it, it makes sense from that perspective, but then um, now you have to, now you have to put in all these meta rules for how those things um interact that i don't i don't think we're we're just not good at and i think but whatever transitional phase we are in civilization that's where we're at is is how to you know how do we how do we get people to to interact with in a um in a good manner with each other in a unified manner and I mean, that's the bad thing and the good thing about this virus is that in some sense we have this external force that's like forcing us to be like, you got to get it together and you got to do it soon. 
It's yeah. this, this isn't like a thing you can put off forever because if you can't coordinate on these levels, um, we already are like as a, as humanity, we we are a some sort of organism together. Yeah. So I have I have a just a couple like I had a couple thoughts and statements I want to throw out of just things I'm thinking and then have a question for you. So what you were just saying, like what this virus, what's interesting is like the answer to this virus, right? a lot of governments have been saying is for us to quarantine. And if you think of that almost like, or social distancing, and if you think of that in like Peugeotian terms of centers and peripheries, the answer with this then is for us to stop our, to stop our individual spreading and expansion and distance with, with the world and come back, come closer into these local units, more local, yeah, less, less spread out and more, bring everything back to the center more. So that's kind of like a big spiritual thing. And then I was thinking as you were talking about complexity and even issues that you're dealing with in work and like this three-tiered system and it's so complex and so big that we can't even hold it into our mind. But I think this gets into a couple things of like what Jordan Peterson has said. A lot of his almost infinite complexity about the world and so therefore the necessity of hierarchy because there's infinite facts there's infinite information, so we need hierarchies. But then also the idea that Peugeot said, right, that uh, this, is, this is what's hard, I think, about a knowledge and information-centric world, is that if the expression of the infinite is also infinite, if there really is infinite information, then what, when, you try to, when you try to develop systems and tools and ways of then controlling that information to get desired outcomes the problem is is that you're doing that based on your salience hierarchies and you don't know what you don't know so you can't necessarily anticipate ramifications of what you're doing because a lot of times that's my thing is like we're trying to fix things that are the that are the effect of of what we created yeah, that's why it becomes so important that you have some things that are at the top of everybody's hierarchy. Yeah. Like where, where truth is such a high value, it's, it's at or near the top for everyone. So at least we can, we can coalesce around that. And I think that's what's been lost. I, th- I think that is true. So then my question, like, I just wonder how this strikes you, would be like, what is, how, sh- how ought, man i mean you could answer it a couple levels how ought mankind and how ought we you um interact with our world or how should we manipulate the world to our desired ends like what should be the way that we think about that because because that's what i would argue the modern man is doing is like we're doing that on just like a freak out exponential level yeah i think i think the um the manipulation part is less less interesting like specifically how we do it is less interesting to me than a better articulation and definition for what those um, ends are that's the thing that's i think is consistently swept under the rug um there's kind of an assumed trajectory for things that never gets spelled out in the definition and um 
I think that's that's something that has to be worked on. Um, but you can do that in a really deceptive way, right? Because this is what I was talking about before with patterns is that you can call yourself a Republican or you can call yourself a Democrat. You're doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. You can call yourself a Christian. You can call yourself an atheist. But underneath it, in my opinion, you have a fundamentally same worldview. And your ends, you think your purported ends and your desires are different. But welcome to self-deception. I don't think they are. Right, this right. is why I say Rhett and Link have the same and I think they did have the same functional worldview as Sam Harris. They just use religious language. Yeah. I need, I need to drop here, but um, oh. it's, it should be pretty short. Uh, do you want, are you able to pick back up in like maybe 20, 30 minutes? If, um... <clears throat> yeah, probably. So um, my children are having a uh, quiet time because that's one of the things that centers us from being crazy, being at yeah. home all the time. Nice. And then, after that, they'll be watching Spanish Netflix. So, okay. So I'll I'll just hit you up afterward and see if you're available then. All right. Cool. Sounds good, man. All right. Thanks. Yep. Re-recording. Look at how easy that is. Wow. Where did where were we? Where were we I'm trying to remember what we left off at. You had. All right. Yeah. Good. <laughs> good. What were we saying? It was something. Shoot, I don't remember. Well, how about this? How about we go through? Because I, I, I have your definition of uh, taking a babble up here, and I wanted to go through it and kind of see All right. where, where we are at the same place and where we're different. Um, so the number one thing you had was individualism. And I think that, that really hits the nail on the head for me because um, – I think there's there's a weird Western definition of the individual as being apart from everybody else. That is, just it really doesn't make sense. I, you know, in David Bentley Hart's That All Shall Be Saved, he has a really great definition where he's, he makes this point that like a person is in some sense a, a sum total of all their relations and associations. And so you can't, you can't, the, the the idea of an individual separate from those things is meaningless in some sense. It's almost like I just had this, I just had this idea. It's almost like a, um, it's almost like conceiving of an individual as a part of a whole, or it's thinking of an individual as like the whole from within one, like a particular of the whole. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, those are two very different things. Yeah, well, I, there's a sense in which the individualism of today is about, um, you know, what I, what I want, what do I need, you know, do I, I can do whatever I want as long as I don't hurt anybody. Um, and we don't have very good, um, you know, ways of defining where that hurt might come from. It's an automatic assumed, this, I don't know, not to derail it, I guess, but it gets, uh, it gets into like the, what I call the divided eye. It's seeing even the idea of like, I can do whatever I want as long as I don't hurt someone. You're seeing a, it's like a built-in division between me and the other automatically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So your next one is progress. Um, and what I, what I think of 
instantly when I hear that, I think of my, my idea of scientism mm. where it's like they're the, the S you know, their eschatology in scientism is, you know, that there's, we're going to this place where we're going to know everything. We're, we're like, we're on our way. We're, yeah. you know, we're going to have this exponential growth of knowledge necessarily, which will lead to a, a knowledge of everything. Um, and, and also not just a knowledge of everything, but an ability to kind of manipulate everything and kind of bend it to our wills. And, you know, right. Like where Sam Harris says, we'll have a pill in the future that, uh, you know, cures people from being murderers. And so why should we, you know, then we'll think very differently about the murderers now because it's all just, you know, some ones and zeros in your brain that we've got to rearrange and it'll be fixed. Right. And this is where I would say that, I mean, I would say for myself, but functionally a Christianity that I was raised in has the exact same thing kind of like the right side of history they just they just don't believe it's going to happen through scientism and material um like this material progress where all of a sudden we're gonna we're gonna figure out all the facts of reality and then be able to once we know all that stuff we, we manipulate the world to our desired ends the christian response is like once we know once we know all the right theological facts and information, then we'll be able to, through knowledge, through understanding, through conscious understanding, we'll be able to manipulate the world and other people. It's, it's the same spirit. It's just using different yeah. categories, I think. Yeah, and it also this also gets into like C.S. Lewis's idea of chronological snobbery and mm. this assumption of, something because it's newer is necessarily better right um and that it has um arrived at something and and and, and so along with that assumption i think comes um um an, a sort of invisibility towards the, the sorts of costs that we always pay for anything new right there's always you know i work at a software company and you know there's always something better about the thing that's new but there's always there's always certain costs associated with it usually there's usually never a free lunch if if only you know and, and even if it is better you still have the cost that the user has to learn new features new stuff like it's like there's at least that cost but then there's also this hidden cost of all the with that new layer of complexity you've probably broken a bunch of stuff you, you're not going to find out about for weeks or months later so yeah, I don't, it's, it's just, I think it's, I don't know if this is related to what you were thinking, uh, but, it, but it's almost like that. Uh, there's a couple things and I love, I go back to these things and talk about them all the time because I don't know of a better way to say them, but it's almost like a, um, that George MacDonald Lilith quote that I love about like, the fact is no man understands anything and you just think you understand them because if you're being used to them. They're right there by you. And so you have in unavoidable interactions with them. But he said, when, when, we, when we really acknowledge that we don't actually understand anything, we're just familiar with them. And, and our models, our mapping, make sense of them and we conflate that with understanding. Once you get that, that's your first step toward the capacity of one day understanding. Like that's the step yeah. that I think most modernists never take 
And Faraz Zerhabi, who's this like MMA coach, was on the Joe Rogan show, I think, a long time ago. Well, a year ago or so. But he was trying to get at this very point. And Rogan, you could just see it was just like, it was just not landing forever. Because in their conversation, I probably sent it to you, where they were talking about woo. And he was saying everything yeah. is woo. Yeah. And he's like, science is just the faith that what happened before will happen again. What he's essentially saying is like, you don't understand it. You just see this repeated pattern and, and conflate that with understanding. You don't know what that is. Yeah, and this is where, this is another thing I, I, I've been thinking about a lot, is that there's something about this way of seeing the world that, that disconnects us both from the top and the bottom. Yes, and we're in this weird, squishy middle. We can't see the assumptions we're relying on. You know, we can't, we can't really see, again, that our eschatology, what's, what is the end of the story that we're moving towards? And, and there's this, um, yeah, it, it's very strange. And, and we're in, it's like the middle, this squishy middle is expanded too in terms of like, it's got all these layers built into it, but we have conceived of it as this kind of very flat thing, you know, with the explaining things away where it's all just, it's all on this one level of knowledge. And you, you know, if it's true in knowledge, you can just see it right here, but that's not really how reality lays itself out at any layer of reality. If you just scrape beneath the surface, there's another layer there and another layer and another layer. And we, we, I don't know, we've, we've, there's this kind of, I don't know what it is, but it's, it's like a, it's just a denial of that complexity. It's just sort of, um, it's sort of anti-intellectual in a way. Yeah. While, while using the, the jargon of intellectuals, you know? Yeah. That's why I found myself perpetually frustrated in different church environments where I went that were highly intellectual. Cause I would just be like, you guys are talking about all this stuff, but like you fundamentally don't understand it. Like yeah. You're talking about really highbrow intellectual things, but right, right. but you don't see like what's underneath all of it. And it's kind of like Paul is getting really close to it. I think particularly I was watching a little bit of it this morning, but in his uh, Brett, what's the guy's name? Sal Salky, whatever the Canadian. The, the new guy, yeah, the guy, the Catholic. The transubstantiation guy. But in yeah. talking about tra transubstanti tra transubstantiation, they were going through the history of where the language, where that language came from. And they were talking about the nature of substance versus accidents, because what Paul kept saying is like, there's a, he's talking about story, you know, and what Paul will often say is like, my story doesn't age, but I, my body ages. So that's the whole balance of what I always say biblically is like the perishable and the imperishable right? spirit and the material, the flesh, heaven and earth, all these different ways the Bible talks about it. But then the the sacrament what what it is is like the substance is almost like the the uh <laughs> my kids are coming up hey maybe close that door open for me too not right now my kids cannot agree upon the video to watch <laughs> they wanted you to be the arbiter to yeah, decide very often this guy, this, the other child wants to watch this and I want to watch this. Can I watch it on something else? Talk about <laughs> hyper individualism, right? Um, yeah. But uh, so they were talking about transubstantiation and what the idea of it is, is that there's something 
the idea of of Christ being present in the Eucharist is that there is something unseen that is that transcends the mere materiality that right. is real there. That's the sacramental worldview, and that's that's actually I think the iconic worldview, which is that like Saint Maximus was saying, and that Jonathan Peugeot talks about all the time, is there's there's a logi in everything, which is why in him we live and move and have our being, and nothing we don't exist apart from God making us exist all the time. Nothing does. Yeah. And when you have, when, when you start to view the world that way, I think this is what like Barfield is talking about. And I think of what even like Terrence Malick is trying to do in his movies. They're trying to transform the way that you see reality. And I think when you start yeah. to see that, that like these eternal things are present in spiritual form and all these different iterations of the material thing and that there isn't there aren't really these distinctions there like there are mentally but they're but they're not and everything's combined um i don't know i lost there was a point of what you were saying that was really connected to that but i lost it with that's good this stuff gets complicated um so, and then another one of your, your points is technology as a defining characteristic. Now, I'd be curious, what is your definition of technology? So, this is where I think that Craig book, uh, Technology in the Human Future, which I haven't read. Like, Jen makes fun of me all the time because I don't read a lot of these books. I just get just enough of them. Like, I get uh -huh. from them what I want, and then I'm just like, I don't need to read it. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Like, it's given me what I need. I can move on. Um, but uh, there's sometimes more in there. But um, but he has the he breaks up this idea. He says technology is kind of common to humanity. We've had it forever, and language in that sense is almost like a technology. Although language is a little different. Um, language is a little bit more magical, mystical, mysterious. But um, uh, technology is just anything that we use to. I should just get the definition. Anything that we use to um, manipulate our environment. Mm -hmm. um, but, but he says one thing about it is it always divorces us from the real to some extent. But then he puts in layers. Like he puts in distinguishing, distinguish, distinguishing categories between like um, tools. He has a category of like tools and then contrivances mm -hmm. and then like machine kind of technology. So there are these levels. And so like very, very basically like a shovel or even like a rock, think like pre-Bronze Age, you know, pre any like metallurgy, um, like a rock is a tool to dig right. something out or like to hold a bowl, to hold food or to hold water, a bucket, really rudimentary bucket. Those are all tools, but yet they are composed of natural things and they are still very naturally connected to the world and so then he gets the idea of like a contrivance which would be like um it's like a, a next level up but it's still something that's very connected to the world like it doesn't earth wind fire water it's still connected to that kind of stuff so like a windmill right. or like a water wheel he said those are tools and that's technology but it's still very connected to the world there's only so much you can do with it right you can't like exponential production increase you can't do that it's still very limited by natural factors 
But then he says you start to get into like machine technology, like post-industrial revolution technology, gears, mechanisms, mass textile producing. And now we're in like that, but on a kind of silicone chip-based, computer-based level, which has globalized that to an even greater extent. And he says you start to get exponential increase with that. Yeah. And there's a very big difference between machine technology and contrivance technology. Well, yeah, I mean, so I, I, I think... Well, when I think about technology, I think about it very broadly, and I, I would even include language in it because language, we don't see the movements of language, but it is language is this thing that we are, we use to manipulate the world, and we are, in fact, manipulating language in ways, well, we're, we're manipulating the structure of language over time as well. Um, so I, I would I would even include that in, in my categories, but I I think... The, the the thing about what what whatever technology is, it, there's there is like some element of multiplication or leverage or you know like you were just saying exponentiality where where you whatever and and what's being magnified is something from above in our intentions it, whatever your intention is and sometimes. Mm it becomes magnified and sometimes in, in um, unanticipated ways. Um, it allows you to take, it allows you to take like a heavenly thing, an idea even, and, and incarnate that idea in a way that allows you to manipulate the material, the temporary, the perishable. So like use it, like I want to carry water from here to there. Well, I can use my hand or I can just suck it out yeah. of the stream or, Oh, I can take, a cup or this, or I can fashion a bucket and I can carry more of that. You're taking a, an abstraction ideal and putting it into materiality to then manip to change to, to, I think expediency is really connected. Right. It makes things faster. That's definitely part of it is speed. Um, what do you think? What do you think God thinks about technology? <laughs> I don't know because this is my, so this is, this is how I'd pull it all back to Jordan Peterson and why I always find such resonance with Jordan Peterson is mm -hmm. he, Jordan Peterson has got fundamentally at some of the stuff that I think is most important to the modern world. Like tell the truth or at least don't lie. I think you, you almost can't get deeper practically than that in my opinion. Like I think that's the, the, almost at the core of everything. He also, one of his rules is do what's meaningful, not what's expedient. I don't, I don't know that those things are disconnected. Expe lying is expediency. Mm -hmm. Lying is a tool. You're trying to manipulate the world to get something that you want. And so then you're not telling the truth. You're using a no, mental, mental tool to manipulate the world. I don't, I don't know. I mean, part of me, part of me that probably strives for balance and not being extreme would say that there's nothing wrong with expediency, but I don't know. There's something very deeply within me that just, that almost thinks universally the faster road is worse. <laughs> like I just, I don't know. I'm very, I am very oh, I, I, leery of expediency. Well, I think, you know, like you're, you're exactly right though, because the ways in which knowledge unfolds itself to you are, is always in a slower manner now. Yeah. So like, you know, everybody knows like there's a, there's a mark 
difference between, you know, mass produced bread and bread made by a baker by hand. There's right. something, there's a, there's something that is completely. Getting, getting health by a pill, diet pills versus yeah. slow effort that's connected to character and responsibility and meaning. I mean, it's. And ultimately I think what gets lost in the fast one is information. Information gets squeezed out. There's so much more, you know, details of things and there's there's also time for it to kind of soak in and make its way into whatever the physical thing is in in the more manual approach always and really i mean what ultimately is affected is us the person the the character the person whoever is doing the thing whereas like you know when you when i flick a you know flick up on my phone and do five other things i'm not really there's I, I can have access to all this information, but it doesn't really come into me in the same way. You can't have that, yeah, Eucharistic embodied knowledge. Like it's very different. It's yeah. like the difference between thinking that you can bake by reading a cookbook and making dough. You know, like yeah. it's just, it's a very different thing. Or it's like, I was just thinking when you were talking, like even on a phone, like, um, the kinds of relational things that we have are back to even reality TV and, and the generational handoff as Paul calls it, or how we're so disconnected and our relationships don't develop. Well, part of that is because we're so divorced from the world and in our individual isolation capsules due to technology that like we're on, we're like using Tinder or we're catfishing people or we're, but like all of that is all of that is a projected image which you are use which is which is bound to be used for deception because you're not going to put you're not you're going to curate all that you're not you're putting instagram yeah. filters on things you're not putting out like the worst I, version of yourself I, yeah I, and i think we know that there's something negative that's transpiring in a lot of these interactions but we there's this weird assumption that it's that we can somehow keep that negativity at bay or distribute it wider in the world and it won't come back on us. Yeah. Well, it's ego. Yeah. I mean, we think we can, yeah, we think we can hold fire close to our chest and not get burned. I mean, it's, I don't, it, it's kind of like, and even what you were saying with like tech, I don't, I don't know what I think about technology being used to bring everything back in. Cause even like the Paul Vanderclay community, this is something that we've, I've had conversations with people about as his community expands I get I am well I think here's how I think about it I think it's either it has to or we're going to be we're going to have a reset like there's there's I mean I mean the way that the speed at which there's so many things that have been like literally we have a planet you you couldn't you, if you take away the technology literally like you know mm. Uh, you know, ninety percent of the people would be dead because that's we're reliant on it. We don't have skills anymore to live. Right? I agree. Exactly. And this is at so many different layers. Even if, like, it used to be, you know, most for the most part, like, say, a country would be fairly self-sufficient. Nowadays, you know, you just cut off global trade, and you know, right? There's so many things that are made here that are only made here, and yeah. we can't get them anymore because we thought it was, you know, it was a good idea that uh, they specialize in that, and we specialize in this. 
Mm-hmm. And so there is, I mean, there's, there's obviously, I mean, there's, there's good things that come about from specialization, but um, there's, there's obviously a big trade-off in terms of fragility of the overall system when, you know, you need, you need some sort of circulatory system now to be up and operational all the time or you die. Um, and, and again, this coronavirus is a big test of this, like whether very interesting you know this this could be a moment where we have we have common cause to think of ourselves as a collective entity and we and and work together and put truth at the top of the hierarchy because lives depend on it um and so it i don't know it's gonna be interesting to see how that that plays out um i think it's part of the problem is, you know, we, again, with, with the top of the hierarchy being this sort of propositional knowledge and at the same time as there being this sort of explosion in the availability and, and we're actually creating new propositional knowledge all the time, even in mm-hmm. terms of what we're doing right now, in some sense, we're trying to like plow beneath something and come back with a representation of it that we can communicate to one another in language. Right. About, right. right. And so yeah. even that effort, right. And if we share this with people, like we're, we're expanding that, that propositional knowledge reach as well. But there's this along with that and with propositional knowledge being so t- high in the hierarchy is that we, um, there's there, people pretend to know things that they don't know. Yeah, or or they either pretend or they think they know. They think they, they think know. that that is knowledge, right? Yeah. yeah. But that's a very yeah, it's a very different thing. That's why I like I like the term Eucharistic knowledge. Like I just, it's so it's such a fundamental. I don't know, uh, Sarah and Dave from the Discord, um, Sarah, who you know, but um, and then I don't know if you interact with Dave much, but he's an Orthodox guy. And um, they were talking recently about Alexander Schmemann's book, uh, For the Life of the World, who's an Orthodox thinker. And his book, it, it's, it's one of those things that keeps coming up. People keep bringing it. One of the first local Orthodox guys I met in the Twin Cities was just like, he reads that book every year. He said it just like changed his life. Um, but a lot of it is about what I would call Eucharistic knowing. Like he begins... And I haven't read it yet, but from what I know of it, it be, it begins with like talking about food and the necessity of eating and kind of like the idea. He starts playing off this idea of like you are what you eat. Mm-hmm. Like that is a it's a deeply deeply true thing. Like even really early on in the uh, in the development of medicine, like that that's a you know let medicine be it's let your so, food it's be so medicine. Like, that we've forgotten. Yeah, it's so weird, right? No, absolutely. But it yet, literally is what you are, what you eat. <laughs> right, right. Absolutely. But, but I think there's part of us that still knows it, but we've gotten so abstracted that I think we forget things like that. And like, that's what I don't, this is a conversation because I love food ethics. So back to the whole food thing and globalization, like I used to tell people all the time and I still believe this, like if Christians ate ethically, it would change the world. Like, I think we sit around debating all these ideas and we try to manipulate how, this is why probably more than anything, one of the big illustrations of why I've moved Orthodox versus more Protestant is like, I don't think, I think habits 
and formation are more powerful than just telling people ideas. Yeah. Um, and I think that if you, like, if we really ate food that was produced, it's so funny. Like one of the first guys, this is before I even got into a lot of my food ethics, like a, early on in my wife's marriage, but we had this, she was in her post-secondary studies and she had a guy in her class whose dad, they used to talk about him and, uh, cause he was just this funny guy. Cause he would, he would only, he wouldn't eat food. He said, unless it was made with love. So like, but it was a big deal in their family. And so like, they'd go out to restaurants and he wouldn't like a lot of times he wouldn't eat or he'd ask him all these questions. And we were just like, Oh, that's such a crazy thing to say. Like, what does that mean? Mm -hmm. Like food made with love. And we're just like, like made with like a, you know, some grandma with a family recipe or whatever. And I think that's part of it. But I, but I really do think like this is, today we have, like what's funny is like you'll talk to people about Paul in the New Testament. He said food, you know, like he talks about food sacrificed to idols and it's neither clean or unclean. But like if it's, if it's, you know, bothering your friend's conscience, don't eat it. But if it's not, go ahead and eat it. There isn't clean yeah. or unclean. But, but he was, but in our modern world, we think like, What's just funny is like, we think that we have food that is no longer sacrificed to idols. Are you kidding me? Of course we have food yeah. that's sacrificed to idols. We have food that's sacrificed to the idol of mammon. Yeah. Everywhere. And you think that's disconnected, disconnected from like health and obesity and diabetes and immunities and your gut biome. Like you are what you eat. Like on every level. Yeah. But people it's don't have a, they don't have a frame to see it. Yeah. A long time ago, this is kind of unrelated, but I, I um, right before I kind of started my journey back into Christianity, I, I had this series, like it was like over a period of month where I kept having these, I called them advice dreams where I would, I was, it was like always while I was waking up in the morning and I would, I would have this sense of like being told like to do something. Hmm very weird like and i wasn't like living in like going to church or anything at that time i was kind of like very agnostic about just the whole thing but yeah. I, I remember coming out of those experiences and being like something's trying to talk to me even if it's just <laughs> my body or myself trying to talk to myself yeah and and the thing i i kept uh, one of the recurring themes was like was pay attention to how you feel after you eat something and it, it just, it, it uh, made me realize how often you never do that. And at that yeah. time in my life, I was, I was really stressed out. And I was like, I was literally just going from thing to thing to thing. You know, I was working like 50, 60 hours a week, uh, traveling a lot. And it was just like this thing that came up out of nowhere, like just pay attention. And, I, and it just made me realize, you know, that's something I almost never, you never do. You never go yeah. like, and you think how back in the long, like, you know, hundreds of years ago, like, if you ate something that didn't agree with you, you knew right away, you know, yeah. first of all, cause you were eating less things period, but also because the, the, the possibility of eating something, you know, that was poison enough to kill you was real possibility all the time, you know, right. like, whereas now we've kind of programmatically mostly removed that. But, you know, if you thought about it, it probably is there in micro doses that are, 
that are in our food supply that are growing all the time because it's, it's below some threshold that we measure for whatever reason right now. It's not within our salience frame at the moment. So we've, right. we've lost sight of it. Um, but um, yeah, I do think that since, and also what's coming up for me too, like you keep, you mentioned Eucharistic scene, but like just, you know, how an understanding of the, the physical aspects of what you're doing with the Eucharist and, what's going on with that and um i don't know it's very interesting I, I don't really know what to make of it but it's like it's like this big question mark that i i feel like i i'm still wrapping my head around and um you know with with those podcasts that that sarah shared recently where they're all focusing on john and john's gospel is so weird when you just compare it to the other gospels it's just so strange and one yeah. of the big things is that where we're in the where would would have been in the you know in the last supper all this stuff about his is my body you know eat it remembrance i mean that's all moved to john chapter six mm. and it's it's just a very interesting little saga there where he you know that's where he does the whole thing you know you'll have to you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood and then some of the disciples go away and stop following him at that point um just, it's, i don't know it's really interesting Sorry, I didn't, I didn't really have a point for that, but it's like this 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 big uh, thing in my in the back of my mind right now, which is like, where, well, yeah, what? How does this all play out, you know, with food and like the ways in which like grocery stores right now are all empty? Um, I don't know. It seems to be something salient. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, the the Eucharist, it's just, I don't know. It's it's uh it's interesting how all these things work. I don't know what the quote is of something of like a, a lot of, um, isn't there some quote about remembering like a lot of religion or life or faith or something like that is a remembering. Um, and I think it's a coming back to, to things like that was, a that was another thing that came up just connected to the Eucharist and that, transubstantiation talk with Paul, but they were talking about how, um, oh shoot, what was it? But it was something in relationship to time. Because that's the thing about the Eucharist too and all this stuff is we don't we don't understand how all those things relate into time. And like, <clears throat> oh I think it's what they were talking about a remembrance. Yeah, because cause a lot of, I don't know when that developed, if that was like sometime during the Reformation or post-Reformation, it was do this in remembrance of me, you know, where right, it was right. thought of as just like a... Psycho psych yes. Psychology of it all. Instead right. Of, there's nothing <clears throat> going on really substantially that's physical in nature. Right. It's just a remembering. But then he was saying within Catholic theology that it's thought of as not just a mere remembrance but it's thought of as like an active present right now participation in <clears throat> in christ and and that's what i was i was reminded too within because that's very much <clears throat> i don't know if that applies to all of like a catholic mass i would think it probably would not just to like the eucharist but very much within orthodoxy like that's the idea one of the reasons orthodoxy I think is so weird to people is as a liturgy is meant to be the whole thing is meant to be 
about everything. It's all meant to be about heaven. It's a participation in these time transcendent things right now. You know, there's like, I just went to a class, our church is going through this thing, theology on Thursdays, where we were going through uh, creation last week and just reading through the Genesis accounts and the two different accounts and then relating that to the creed and how all those things work. And he was saying like, even the dome in an Orthodox church, like that's meant, that's meant to be the dome in creation. Like that's the firmament, yeah. like everything. I was talking about this to, to someone on the discord, maybe Paulina or something, but, um, about how one of the things that I love about orthodoxy coming out of a very in my head theological, like get all the facts and information right tradition of Christianity is it's not that orthodoxy is, is like opposed to information and knowledge and propositions, but it's just like when you go to a liturgy, part of it is, is that it's not my tradition, but also it's just like, there's two, there is, there's, one of my favorite things about it is it's overwhelming. Like there's no way, there's no way I could possibly track what's going on. Really. It's too much. Everything has meaning yeah. and it's thousands of years of meaning, like in everything that you're seeing in the smells, in the change of the colors in what they're doing with the lighting, when they're lighting the candles, not only what he's saying in the sermon, everything, everything about it how everyone is orienting to themselves has so much meaning in it my mind one of the things i most love about it is my mind shuts off and it's and that's not like stemming out of it part of that is probably just me that's not like saying an anti-intellectualism i'm not saying like we shouldn't think about these things but it's a it's almost like a i think of it as like a <laughs> It's almost like, um, what do they call those? Like a, um, like a rehab. It's like a recovery thing for me. Mm -hmm. Like I'm going there to recover from information addiction. Yeah. How, how often do you go to, to do like the divine liturgy or whatever? So, I mean, that's, you know, they do that. The divine liturgy is every Sunday. And then, yeah. um, they have a Vesper service because really that, that's another thing. They were just talking about that because orthodoxy is still in the tradition of Judaism, really, where like the day starts in the evening. Uh, so Vespers is really like the liturgical beginning of the day. And then... Um, so people, for Vespers, people show up at the church like at all those services? Yeah, well, yeah, fewer people do than for divine liturgy. But, and, the, and do and they do the Eucharist at Vespers as well? No. No, no. Just, okay. Yeah. But now during Lent, they have, so there's, there's a lot more services during Lent and I'm still figuring a lot of this stuff out. They'll have, they have a lot of pre-sanctified liturgies. They'll have mm -hmm. liturgies during the week that are pre-sanctified, meaning that they're like before, before the divine liturgy on Sunday. So like before the sanctification of, of the elements and all that happens. So there's all these different services. And then there's, it's kind of funny because if you went if you truly, I mean, if you truly practiced like the monastics do, um, which normal lay people don't do, I mean, there's, there's, you see, once you participate in a church for very long, there's various levels of how you're like, oh, those are the people that are at everything. And then here are yeah. the people that are at most things. And then here are the people that just show up at liturgies. 
And then these are the people that just show up like right before communion on liturgies. And these are the people that show up like just during Lent and at Christmas, maybe, you know, mm-hmm. so there's all those levels. But, um, but like if you, if you went to all the services of like a day w- within an Orthodox calendar, it's like 18 hours. Oh, wow. I mean, it's like, that's monastics. Monastics, that's all they do is like, is do the services, a little bit of work, praying and sleeping. Like that's all they do. Um, so, I mean, it can be, it definitely can be a lot. And some of those things are truncated at times um, and in different traditions, but, but there's a lot of it for sure. But it's. And you go to a, it's an Orthodox Church of America. Is that what you yeah. go to? Yeah. yeah. Um, which I was, yeah, that's an aside. I was gonna, I was just learning about the history of it. Our church in particular is interesting in Minneapolis because it, um, I always thought that the Orthodox Church in America came out of the Russian church. Uh, but I don't think that's exactly right. Our church is a little bit weird too, in that um, St. Mary's where I go was, was originally founded as it was a, it was Catholic. It was a Catholic church of the Eastern Rite, So it was like a Byzantine Catholic church. Huh. Uh, so like in Europe, like post Charlemagne, I believe there were, um, there were some Catholics in like, Poland, Eastern European area that were kind of like on the border between Orthodox and Catholics and the Catholics kind of a lot of political stuff were going on, but they, but they were reintegrated kind of into the Catholic church, but they were given a few, you know, the Catholic church gave them a few things to do it. They were like, you can, you can keep the Eastern right. So like the liturgy looks a lot like an Orthodox liturgy, but it's under the Pope, under the Catholic hierarchy. Um, and so that ch- our church was a Catholic church to begin with, but then due to, and this is kind of famous, like I was talking to Andreas about it on the discord within Orthodoxy, Catholicism, they, it was a start, it was a beginning church. This is where all the ethnic stuff came up, but it was mostly like Slavic Eastern European people. Um, and, uh, and they were reaching out to like the local bishop, I believe the local Catholic bishop for some help. But because there were all these cultural things, because they were in America, he was just kind of like, I'm not going to help you. And so they were just sitting here kind of isolated from then like the larger Catholic thing. And they're like, what, what do we do? And so then they reached out to the Orthodox Bishop in San Francisco and he helped them and stuff. And so like the whole church converted to Orthodoxy. Oh, wow. And then, um, and then a bunch of churches actually in the U S and then, so he's sainted now. His name is, um, Oh, How long ago was that? That was like in the early nineteenth, like twentieth century. So like, wow. Um, a- Alexander, yeah, Toth. What is his name? Saint Alexander Toth, I believe. But he, and then he went around the whole U.S. like converting a bunch of Eastern Catholic churches to Orthodoxy, and the Catholics were. And then I think a lot of the Catholics, like even Andreas, was just like, I don't think they really appreciate the local Catholic bishop that kind of started that cascade. <laughs> you know so anyhow that's that's kind of where our our church is and so it's kind of an interesting church it's become really it has some remnants of a little bit of catholicism but it's it's pretty well orthodox now i mean in 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 terms of the theology of the eucharist is that now you're are you a member of your church or you're in the process of becoming like 
Yeah. So whatever. Yeah. So me and the kids actually were, we became catechumens like a few weeks ago officially. And the plan is my kids will be uh, baptized and then do like first confession and first communion and all that um, coming up here during Lent. I am not going to at this time because I'm just for various reasons, just not going to do it yet. But um, I am a catechumen, so I'm like officially on the books, but yet not officially Orthodox. It's kind of in this liminal place. Interesting. So do you go to to separate special events or do you like how, what is. So I go to everything like there's, so um, there's a, there's an interesting part within the divine liturgy that they talked about for a while taking out, but they keep it in because the Orthodox just don't change anything. They're like, we're not taking that out. Um, but it's called like the, um, the dismissal of the catechumen essentially, because in the early church, it's like, if you imagine the really, really early church when paganism was really a big deal and, and like even the Pauline letters talking about the Eucharist and, or like speaking in tongues or anything. And he's like, you should do this while you're together. Cause if you do this around outsiders, they're going to think you're insane. Yeah. So like in a, in a pre-Christian society, there they built in this place, which was called the, the, um, the dismissal of the catechumens. So there's a point in the Orthodox where they say like, let no catechumen remain at all catechumens depart where they're like, leave, which is before the communion, because, because that's essentially why, like, we don't want the catechumens. And, and there's even in the, you can't take communion as a, as, in that as a catechumen. Thing. Right. Okay. But also like, um, during the Eucharistic, creed there's a section of like i will not uh what does it say it's when you're out of the rhythm it's hard to remember all these things but it's like i will not um disclose essentially thy mysteries to thine enemies neither like judas will i give thee a kiss but like the thief will i confess thee have mercy on me a sinner but so like it's like i'm not going to talk about my mysteries the mysteries of christ to outsiders because they wouldn't understand like they're gonna think we're cannibals like it's a weird thing so that was kind of the idea like you are a catechumen you can't participate in this yet like you're part of this learning process um to become orthodox then where you can participate and so they would go off and do like their own catechumen training where they would go through like the gospel of john you know and be learning all that because that's why a lot of people think john was written was almost like a, it's like a training gospel to teach yeah. people as like an entry into the church um and so, but they don't really do that anymore because, because now we're in a post-Christian society. So they're like, there's really what the practical purpose that that served isn't even necessary anymore. They okay, keep so it you, in don't, the you don't leave and you, no. but, but do you take communion? No. Okay. Nope. You're not allowed to take communion, which is so like adult converts or even like my kids is, is different because like, because if you're raised Orthodox, if you're a cradle Orthodox, they would say you you're baptized. I mean, I don't know when they do it. Maybe the, it's maybe parallel to like circumcision, like on the eighth day or something. I mean, you're baptized pretty early. Um, you take first communion immediately after baptism. And then like, so my, I have a, one of my kids. Do they, they call it baptism chrismation. Is that right? So chrismation would be like, if you, if you are a Christian who is converting to orthodoxy, but you've already received an acceptable Trinitarian baptism, uh-huh. they then you would just receive 
chrismation as opposed to being baptized. Gotcha. Okay. Which varies on how the priest and would want to handle that depending on situations. Like I think I'll probably have to be baptized again when I become Orthodox, but yeah, I'm, I, it's curious. It's interesting, you know, like um, that that the Orthodox have been able to maintain. I don't know, or resist rather the kind of, uh, you know, what all the, the, all the modern things you would think that would uh, make them want to like do this a lot faster and just, you know, get members in and all those things. Yeah. It's almost, it's almost completely like that, that very thing, like almost kind of like that, that evangelical impulse Mm -hmm. is very foreign to the Orthodox, just on every level, theologically, practically everything. Like even, us well, it reminds going, me more like the Jews, right? Where yes. like they say, if you go to a rabbi and ask to become a convert, they're supposed to turn you away a few times yeah. before yeah. they will allow you to to become a proselyte. So yeah, that's kind of it. Like even the whole time we've gone to the church, every t- it's so funny. I noticed that right away. Anytime we meet someone, the assumption is I'm Orthodox, and that you've just moved to town, and so you've started attending this Orthodox church. When I'm just like, no, we're not Orthodox. They're like, where do you live? And I'm like, like right here you know, like really close to the church. And there's like, what? It's just like, it doesn't make sense to them. And they're like, oh, you're not Orthodox. Like, but, and they're always really welcoming and warm. And they're like, oh, that's cool. Yeah. But they just, but it's not a phenomenon that happens a lot. You know, even though our church has a lot of converts in it. Um, it's just not a, and they're very comfortable with slow. Like my wife, for example, is um, very much, not ready to become a catechumen, not ready to like join the church or any of that. And their response to that is kind of like, slow is good. Like the Orthodox are very comfortable with slow. <laughs> That's really cool. You yeah. Know? They're, they're kind of almost like, well, she sounds Orthodox, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like doing things really slowly and are, and are most of the the people in your particular congregation or they have like some sort of ethnic connection to one of the other non-american orthodox churches from the past well so there's a lot of that like this is well most of the people like i was saying it's interesting like most of the original people came out of this a guy was i need to get this history down better but he was just telling me about it they came out of like it's such a crazy they came i think it was in and I'm the geography and the history of this of all of orthodoxy is kind of new to me, so I'm figuring it all out. But so they were in like this small Eastern European country, and like they all they all almost came from like one village, hmm. like it's crazy. Um, and then they came over here, and like I was saying, they were they were um, they were Catholic, so they were like Byzantine Catholics, Catholics of the Eastern Rite, and so they. So they were all, they were Slavic is the best way to say it. Cause this, cause their, their ethnic heritage like precedes modern geopolitical boundaries. Right. Right. Like they came from people groups that were like before all that stuff. So like even, and I was trying to figure a lot of this out. Like they're, I think a lot of them came from maybe Slovakia, they were saying. Mm-hmm. So like there's a there's a some people groups that were just like Poland, Slovakia, maybe into like Romania, Ukraine potentially, but like they were of just this particular people group. Um, but it's interesting. Like they can all this stuff is. There was this girl that was last week in their kind of like bookstore, which is 
books, like less books, think like a Christian bookstore, but like replace 90% of the books with like jewelry and icons and like stuff that aren't just books. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And they were, uh, she had all these eggs. She like paints these eggs and some of them are wooden. Some of them are like real eggshells, but she was talking to me about all these eggs and these intricate designs. They take tons of time. They're kind of expensive. And she was saying like, she was describing to me like these are particular to this one little village and sometimes they'll take them to the state fair and there'll be other people there and they'll and they're like she's they're judging my eggs based off of these eggs and I'm like well that's a totally different kind of egg because that was from this other village it's like such a yeah like niche. such a specific ingrained ancient it's just like they're for me who like came out of it's not just evangelicalism, but even like my ethnic heritage. Like, I don't even know people talk about like 23 and me and like getting your genetics mapped and like figuring out. And that's just the thing, truly like for Caucasian people, it's kind of like, we don't, Yeah. everybody talks about Caucasian, but like, that's not, that's not an ethnicity. It's not a history. It's, it's weird that it's all been lumped together. I don't, I don't know. That's the weird thing about wokeness too. That yeah. All these disparate people groups are lumped together on just based on on one of one aspect of their uh what is their most visual component of <laughs> right them but still it's it's ridiculous it's like if we put all the people that have blonde hair into a single category you know it's just, right just silly so like i don't know so that's been one of the things too that's so striking to me it's not just about the differences in theology and the difference in liturgy and the difference in practice it's just such a deep such a deeply rooted historical uh, land ethnic kind of feel to it. Mm-hmm. E- even though I go to an OCA church, so it's very open, it's very ecumenical, it's very like uh, it's very American. Um, like it's actually interesting. So like here's a here's a perfect example. I just heard from this guy who's my son's church school teacher. Sorry, I'm going, we're going off on all this church stuff. um, And he was saying that like some, they will have, they like, they have the flag in the front of the church. And a lot of times they'll have the flag around in the cemetery and they, they have the flag, which kind of coming out of that country. No, like the U S flag. Okay. And part of that was like, I didn't, I let it go. I didn't focus on too much, but like in evangelicalism, that was kind of triggering to me because I'm very non-nationalistic and like this stuff Preston and I talk a lot about, like he wrote an article, like I pledge allegiance and why he doesn't pledge allegiance. And I'm kind of on that perspective too. But, but this guy was explaining to me that the reason the flag is up a lot was almost like, the opposite of why it would be up in an evangelical church to be like very nationalistic, like we're Americans, you know, like Jesus with a, you know, like M16, like they were having such national ethnic, I think problem, I think is what he said, problems with like, so identifying with like certain cultural heritage that they put the flag up as an American flag, almost as like a pushback to that. To say this is where we are now, and that's that's part right. Of, that's and I was just like, "Whoa, building. that's like so." Like the flag up is a representation in the front of the Orthodox Church is like a totally different thing yeah. than the flag up in front of like my Evangelical Church. You know, it's just like that's a really good example of just like it's a it's a totally different world. You know, it's, really it's weird. Cool.
Yeah, it's a trip. Are you are you check? I know you were checking out churches at some point. Are you considering orthodoxy? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I I, I don't know that I could get um, my fiance. Her name's actually Jen as well. Um, yeah. I don't know if I could get her on board with it. Like, we go to an Anglican church. Join the club. <laughs> um, and um, she likes she likes that. Okay, she really likes the pastor there. He's like a younger guy. He's probably about about our age and you know he's i I, i've been i I really love that church in a lot of ways but that's like almost like the extent of like how how much she wants to be in that religious boat Mm. you know at all like she's grew up in like kind of a restrictive christian Mm. background as well and you know that i grew up in one as well and so she kind of sees a lot of it as negative it's like okay so it's like something to be embraced like there's a good thing there but don't go too far because then you turn into one of these crazies you know that's how she kind of i think um conceives of how this all fits together it's like it's like good in small doses but if you like have too much of it then you're you you immediately become one of these people that are you know crazy and whatever which I have, I mean, I have some of that in myself as well, you know, where I'm, especially anybody that's very dogmatic about any sorts of points of view. I'm just, that's very, I don't, I'm not interested in that anymore. Um, right. But, um, but I do think it's certainly, you know, I see it as a vehicle. I, I, I just think there's so much of, of a spiritual journey cannot be um, undertaken alone. Right. So. Right. I mean, that's a lot of my, that's the reason I'm not, I mean, largely being baptized and going all the way is, I mean, it, that's a really complicated and more personal conversation, but um, the, the short version is that, like, I don't want to be, I don't want to really, part of it is that I don't want to do it until I feel like I'm really free to do it and put mm-hmm. it and put it as a priority in our life. Yeah. And, and I also just don't want to, I don't want to be so invested in something um, that my wife isn't, you know? Right. Right. Um, And that's a bit of a struggle. Something that's really interesting about orthodoxy that my, my wife and I got together with our priest and we're talking about, because we're trying to work through some of these issues was, and it's true. And that Rod uh, Tripp and I, this was like the impetus for our whole conversation that, will eventually come out of randos. Um, but especially in America, and I don't know if outside of America, I'm not sure, but conversions to orthodoxy are like majorly male, like by yeah. a huge degree. Um, and it's, and it's such an, inter- and, and the priest was saying that, like that's his experience. And broadly, that's the experience of the Orthodox church too. And he said, that's something that a lot of times they talk about and they're just like, they don't really know why necessarily that happens. Um, and Rod Dreher's treat thread was a lot about that. But like, it is a, it's a, it's a super interesting phenomenon because the church in America, largely the evangelical church, is thought of being as very female driven mm-hmm. and yeah. almost n- negatively said very feminized. And the Orthodox Church is not that way. Like, very often it's male converts that bring their wives along that either come along kind of lagging five, 10 years later, maybe. Yeah. Or, or never do. That's interesting. Yeah. And I, I, I'm, I would guess, I mean, 
a lot of those converts have some sort of experience with one of the ancient Eastern fathers that brings them in the, of the male converts. Yeah. That, I mean, that that's, I think, I think within America, it's probably a combination of things. Um, I think a lot of times it's probably in America, it's probably people with high openness, but who are also really interested in ideas. I mean, maybe, and maybe this is just my story, you know, it was as I was reading broadly and outside of the prescribed book lists um, and just kept digging, you know, I'm just digging, digging, trying to figure things out, trying to understand things. Like at some point you get to, you get, and especially as you keep going back and back in time, eventually you meet up with some of these Eastern fathers and Eastern people. And I just kept finding just tons of resonance. Every time I'd read these guys, I'm just like, Oh, this is like, this is how I've always thought of stuff. Yeah. And I just never knew it. And so you keep digging and going into that. Um, But what's so weird about orthodoxy too, is that, um, so like you can get there through that very kind of like mapping, searching kind of masculine impulse, but orthodoxy is so feminine, everything about it. Mm-hmm. Like um, I, it's, well, I would just say it's, it's very balanced is how I would say it. Like the Theotokos, all the female saints, the, yeah. the aesthetics, the, I mean, it's the language. I mean, it's just, it's very, very, well, in, in the sense of mystery. That too, yeah. yeah. Of, just, not, of not giving definition to every last single thing. And right. even, even some, you know, jealously guarding the mysterious space is something that you can't necessarily fill in. Yeah, and just space and openness and even like incense. I mean, all of that stuff is, and I, and I, I don't even mean feminine by like, this is something Preston and I talk about, which I think these things get worked out. Like when I say feminine, like Preston, a lot of times he hears the way that he takes that is like, that's, that's a cultural stereotype that we have labeled feminine. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, no, 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 no. I think, I think feminine is much deeper than that. Like it's an, it's like a re it's a spiritual reality. Right. Um, and so when I say something's feminine, I'm not saying like this matches with like a cultural democratically decided projection of what femininity is i'm saying it's a reflection of a deeper reality that we are in relationship which may or may not have overlaps with those cultural things certainly um so i don't know it's a i'm I'm at such a weird place though because i mean i am i'm evangelical in the sense that i'm very I'm very outspoken and not shy to talk about my testimony and about what I think and where I am. You know, it's, it's kind of like the sense of like, if I, I've always said, if I find a good restaurant or something and I'm, I always heard it said, described this way. Like if you go to a restaurant, you have the best burger you've ever had in your life. And I care about someone. Why wouldn't I, you should go, go check out this burger. Like it's unbelievable. You know, like I want to share that with people. So I talk about, so I'm very willing to talk about orthodoxy in that regard, but yet I also have come into a greater understanding kind of moving out of my propositionalism to say like, people are so much more complicated than just our ideas. It's not as easy as like orthodoxy makes sense in all these ways you should become orthodox. It's not that easy. 
Mm-hmm. Like I just, I, I almost, I almost said this the other day, like, um, my daughter's wanting something else again. I'm going to have to <laughs> oh, no worries, go pretty quick, but, um, but just a sec. Okay. Um, I was saying that, um, I almost am to the place where I think that people, I probably would say that I think it's best that people stay in the tradition they were raised in. Like I'm not a bit, I don't, I don't think everyone should convert to orthodoxy. Um, I think, I think if people want to, you know, maybe, you know, each should be fully convinced in their own mind. Like I shouldn't say don't, I'm not going to say that either, but, but I think it's just much more complicated than, than just like accepting a new mental framework. There's so many, there's who we are and what we know in our culture and history is so much more complicated than that. Like for me, someone who was raised an evangelical mutt somewhat, I'm like, what is my, what is my spiritual tradition? Well, it's kind of always been an a la carte, pick whatever you want, go to whatever church you want. Like I don't, there isn't one really you know? And so it's kind of hard to stay true to that. I don't even know what it is. I think that a lot of people switch because they have certain wounds coming out of that too, for sure. And so, yeah, so there's, again, there's something about, and at least coming into a new tradition that they can, they can experience some of the same truths in ways that aren't necessarily tagged to um, some of those old hurt feelings, maybe. Right. And that's a, and I mean, that's also an understandable impulse. I mean, part of me, sorry, I feel like my mic's messing up. Part of me is kind of like, and we spoke about this a little bit with Rhett and Link, or Jeff has said this, and part of me, and I have some of that too, part of me is like, those negative reasons aren't as good as positive reasons. But yet, I don't know, everybody's where they're at. Like something Jeff said in our conversation with Sam about Rhett and Link, which I really resonate with is that everybody is in as much as you can. And as you're able, if you're telling the truth and not lying to yourself, everybody's journey is their own. And in as much as you're not lying and self-deceiving, whatever you need, you need. Like, I, I don't think there's a universal stamp or formula that of what everyone should be doing. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. Like with the truth thing, I think if you if you pull on a truth thread, a thread of truth, it's always going to lead you somewhere good eventually. But if this is the whole individualism versus being part of a tradition too, like you're if you're if you it can lead you in some. It's gonna be. It may. It might not be the most fun path to take though. (laughs) Yeah, and and by yourself you're going to probably lead, you're going to come across a lot of hurdles that are maybe going to make you stop. It's easier with the, the help of a tradition to kind of push through. So, Yeah, I think that's definitely true. I mean, the, the, I think that maybe the most dangerous, but yet maybe necessary and hard place to be is in kind of the, it's almost, it's almost funny that like the spiritual, but not religious, the nuns, the people who still, are spiritual but don't affiliate with any religious tradition like that almost seems like just the natural progression from like catholic protestant 
mainline churches, more and more disparate, more evangelical, kind of non-denominational. Mm-hmm. Well, you, well, you might as well keep going to just like the completely individual, like you're spiritual, yeah. but you have no tradition. Well, that seems like the progression. Yeah. Um, and that seems exactly what has happened. And, you know, if you have a conversation with anybody, that seems to be like, and you poke beneath the surface. It's very, it's very hard. You don't really find that many people that are don't have some sort of religious impulses underneath the surface, no matter what they, yeah. um, you know, and, and Paul points this out a lot too, but it's, it's like you, it's because the thing is, if you get rid of it completely, if you go full materialist, man, it's a, it's a rough place to be. You go. I don't even buy it. I mean, really like this, and this is even like the conversations with people that are nihilists and maybe this is condescending for me to say that, but like everybody says they struggle with nihilism. And I had this conversation with Julian, like pretty early on when he and I met and I just said like, I don't, I don't think anyone's a nihilist. It doesn't even make sense to me because nihilists, or I was listening recently to, do you know who TJ Miller is? Uh, Yeah. He was on Silicon Valley and he's on Deadpool and stuff. Um, he was saying, because he's a nihilist, he, like, he'll talk about theology a lot, self-identified nihilist. But, he was, but even like, he was talking to this guy recently, and I was watching it, and he said but he's a positive nihilist because he's, you know, he just thinks whatever, you know, whatever is good for people or whatever makes them happy or what, you know. He has this very, this is what's interesting. This is like the Rene Girard kind of cultural post-Christian smuggling or Tom Holland is like you're the most christian nihilist i've ever seen <laughs> you know because like there's nothing there is nothing intrinsic to nihilism that would say that like i remember my conversation with julian is he would say like sometimes i think it was with julian or somebody was saying you know like they had thoughts when they were struggling in this meaning crisis and feeling nihilistic like i should just kill myself or i should jump off my cliff mm-hmm. and i said the thing the thing that people never challenge themselves or think with is like if everything is meaningless, why kill yourself? That's yeah. meaningless. Go eat a cake. You know, like, yeah, yeah. Go, go work out really hard. If everything is meaningless and so therefore you're depressed and don't want to do anything, your whole thing is self-refuting. Yes, but it's hard to find any system of knowledge that isn't self-refuting that's why systems suck that's why i yeah. love gabriel marcel <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah i, I mean I, I i i think when people use that moniker nihilism in a certain sense there there there's a kind of a, a, if you're self-professing to the world that you're nihilistic you're definitely wanting to um you're advertising some sort of wounding i think of like a sense of like i crave this meaning hmm. and yet it's not there. So I, I'm taking this kind of radical step in the opposite direction where I'm, I'm trying to pretend that I'm embracing that there is no meaning. But, but even, even that sort of move is, is a recognition of the fact that something in me is screaming for this meaning to be present. And, and I, I can't put it together. I can't put the pieces of the puzzle together. So I, I'm saying that there isn't one. But yeah, it, it's really hard. And I mean, in my own sort of coming out of uh, like, I would say it's like, it's, 
don't know, it's like a, nihilism in some sense is a extreme sort of noxious or um, saying of like, just like a, a limitations of our knowledge, which in some sense there's oh, a truth okay. in that, right? Yeah, for sure. I, I think it's like a, maybe there's a meaning, but I can't access it. It's part of what I think is, is underlying that, that, um, that, that jargon or behavior. But I found in my own life that, you know, there's some of these, this, this idea of that um, things are meaningless kind of played itself out in weird kind of different areas. Like it would just, like, I, I, it would just be like a certain part of my life. I was essentially acting as if mm. it was meaningless. As, and it's as, as a way of, um, there's, there's all sorts of reasons for doing that. But one of the benefits is you, um, the highs and the lows of whatever is going on there affect you less, mm. you know, yeah. with the, like, like, you know, um, you know, say like your job's not going well within that little frame, you can say, well, this part of my life has no meaning this, you know, or you're in a relationship that's not going well, or your relationship to your, your parents or whatever. Like you can, you can put it in this little box of nihilism and go, yeah, I'm out, you know, drop the mic, walk away. Your existential defense (laughs) mechanism. Yeah, exactly. And, and (laughs) I was, I was kind of surprised to uncover that that's actually something I had done in all these little boxes, you know, it was just like a way of like, and then I could always re-engage if things were looking up, you know, I'm like, okay, I'm going to now pretend like it means something, you know, it's very, yeah. very much that's, just a tool that's you're grabbing off the shelf that's been crafted by the culture you're in. Right. Oh man. That's why the, I don't know, the tell the truth thing. It's so important. I think it's almost like, I don't know. That's like my, it's my go-to practice thing for everyone is it's really, it really is. And I don't know exactly, there's more thinking I need to do, but I should probably go soon. Unlike the, I really, I'm still, I've just been marinating on the subjective objective thing. That thing when it comes to beauty is, is that one seems easiest yeah. and most clear, but I think it's also related to truth. And it's kind of related to that idea that I've been tossing around of like, when you the way i think in tweets sometimes because i built that habit i think when i was on twitter but it's like if you if you until you submit to your subjective truth you'll be unable to submit to objective truth that's the way that i've been thinking about it Hmm. um and it's and it's not that it's almost like a it's almost like an acknowledgement of like, until I tell the truth, until I tell the truth about what I really believe, I can't even submit to the truth that's outside of what I currently believe. Right. Because your own relationship to truth is so mucked up. Yeah. You can't, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta polish the mirror before you can see anything in it. Right. Right. And so that's why I think everything, everything you are experiencing comes first through your subjectivity. It's inescapable, right? And so, like, that's that's even why, like, sometimes the hardcore apologetic type tribal fighting for objective rational truth people, I'm just like, cart before the horse. Yeah. Let's tell the truth first. That, that, that's like the whole thing with the, the people, you know, like with Carl and his, his takedown on um, postmodernism, which and in buffoons. some sense, I. I totally agree with, which is like, yeah. okay, you're yeah. making this claim 
you know, that there is no absolute truth and that itself is an absolute truth. It's like, no, 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 no. It's, it's, more subtle. that's it's my more least, subtle. yeah, that's my least favorite, like rationalist gotcha, probably. Well, I mean, it's, it's one I, you know, I bought into and I think there is, there is something true in that because yeah. I think there are some postmodernists that take that point of view. They will, they will say, okay, you can deconstruct everything except this one little thing. They'll have it's this the, little, this, yeah. this, that they it's hide the, underneath. It's the true relativists that like deny hierarchy. Yeah. That deny and, and that, like, the, yeah. That's rife everywhere. But, yeah. um, but, there, but what, what you are saying is that, that there is something about subjectivity that always limits, that, that, uh, that puts a frame around, around truth and limits our, our ability to, to see it. And I don't definitely think, propositionally. No, yeah. Nobody would even die, like deny that, you know, nobody, everybody knows that, but it's weird that in these, when we get into this realm of language, like for, for instance, in that case, it's just a syllogism, right? You know, the train, the, the claim that there is no absolute truth is a claim to absolute truth. Right. You know, logic right. refutes itself done right but the problem is logic itself is something of our creation it is like this sub this sub reality that is useful but only for judging entities within that you know that are created within that frame like we we exist in this larger reality reality that none of us have complete access to like so it's like these things like logic they don't um they're just they're just not good they're useful tools they're just um i don't know like there's this weird idea that we can use them to describe the whole world you know that it's just well it's the it's the elevate it's the elevation of our conscious articulated knowledge to a place it was never meant to be which um I don't know. I really, I really do still like, and this is a lot of what Tripp and I talk about, the idea of propositional knowledge as potential. I think if we really, and that's what I was telling him, I think if we really took Verveke's four Ps and moved propositional knowledge to like its own category of potential, like it's fine. It's valuable. But here's, the, but here's the other thing. This is Barf, one of Barfield's big points is none of those things are really separate. Like, like even like yeah. Verveke's yeah. idea that you can separate any of them and call them knowledge still is ridiculous like it's just procedural what knowledge, is what knowledge do you have access to that's just yeah. propositional you just well how you know it just mm-hmm. becomes ridiculous there's because all we're embodied yeah but the thing is it it actually isn't knowledge until there's a unity between those different things right and and yeah. we we have this weird hierarchy where we think of knowledge as the as propositional knowledge devoid of all the other three which would pollute it yeah and so that's that's the weird thing that we can't seem to seem to resolve. Yeah, no, but I think that's true. That's an awesome way to close. I got to make dinner. Cool. Well, well, this was fun. I guess uh, send my way when you get a chance. I will send it to you. Do you? Um, we'll maybe share with friends and see what people think or something. Cool. All right. Sounds good. As always. <laughs> It's fun to talk yeah. to you, Clark. <laughs> I like them. They look good. They're nice. 
Yeah, they helped me see. <laughs> well, you know, my, might as well look good too. There's, I have such different aesthetic tastes. Like I picked out my wife's glasses, which she thinks are just ridiculous, but I love them. And because uh, they're more like a, I'm more of a, in general, Pete Holmes always describes people as either like look at me's or, or I see you. Like he says, uh -huh. there's two different kinds of people. There's like, I see you people. And there's the look at me people. And I tend to be more of a, I mean, I see people too, but I'm definitely not afraid of attention. And so, yeah. <laughs> and so like I got her these, she has like these gold rimmed, but they're like bigger glasses and they're like more, I don't know. I think they're, I think they're awesome because they're a good balance because they like pop and they look cool, but they also work with almost anything. They can be neutral, uh -huh. but they, they kind of simultaneously pop, but are neutral. And she's just like, they're the kinds of things that she just never would have picked because my wife is not a look at me person. She just, she, she wants to not be seen at all. She never wants to be the center yeah. of attention. That, that's kind of how I mean. <laughs> <laughs> like the, the more things are like drifting towards me as being the focus, then yeah, the, the more uncomfortable. <laughs> Which so. is so funny. I just, I don't know. That's probably outside of like theology and food discussions just like human psychology and personality stuff is so endlessly fascinating to me. Like, I just think it's so crazy how different we all are. It's unbelievable. Yes. It's, it's, uh, I can't wait to find out what it's all about. <laughs> yeah. It's wild. I just, I'm so fascinated with people. Like I really am. Like I'm just, I love people so much because like when I find out, because most of my life I just projected myself on other people. So I'd be confused when people would do things I'm like, why are you doing that? That makes no sense. And then all of a sudden I figured out just how different people are or slowly they have over time. And now I'm just like, when I see that kind of stuff now, I just get so excited. I'm just like, that's so crazy. So crazy how different we are. Yes. I mean, like it's, it's weird how, like, even in the ways we're different, though, they're also reflections of a similar underlying motivation. Oh, totally. And just, it's like a different, different strategy for trying to get the same place, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think it's the, like, it's that whole, the expression of the infinite is also infinite. It's just like people are infinitely complex and similar and different. Like, it's kind of like someone on the Discord recently, and this is most people in my life, and they get frustrated with me, especially like more fundamentalist type people, is like Kale was saying something. He's like, arguing with Luke is like, is it this or this? And then he's like, Luke, yes. <laughs> and I'm just like, <laughs> and that's. That reminds me, was it you that, that sent that podcast out the other day? It was both and? Yeah, for sure. Great yeah. name for podcast. Which is a, yeah. and that episode both was and. great. I loved it. Oh, it was, it was really good. Uh, I don't know. It's a, uh, I just love, when I get exposed to stuff I don't know or don't understand, it's, it's exciting to me. Like, I love it. You know, it's not threatening to me. It's just like, oh, it's like fun. It's like the world's a playground. You know, it's an adventure. Yeah, it's curious. I feel like, yeah, oh, well, actually, I'll save that. I'll that coming for another time since we're wrapping up. <laughs> All right. Yeah, we'll keep talking forever. All right. Um, and I'm also, I'm just going to put this out there. We'll, I want this like PBK Discord world 
to just transition into like me traveling around with my family. So I'm going to come visit you someday. <laughs> yeah, man. Anytime you're in Atlanta, man. It'll be fun. We can go on a love is blind tour and like get a bus. Yeah, man. I'm, I'm going to, you know, I'm really fascinated. I'm going to go watch it. I'm, I'm sure I can talk Jen into it. It's so fun. She's, she's I like always it. like, yeah. Okay. I'll, I'll watch it. I'll, I'm, I'm interested to compare notes on those things. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> All right. Peace, man. Sweet. Take it All easy. Right.